It has been about a month, but here we are again, resuming our series in the Old Covenant. We uh, worked our way all the way through Genesis, and we worked our way through the first 20 chapters of Exodus until we got to Mount Sinai. And historically, at Mount Sinai, God gives the Old Covenant to the people of Israel. And this is much of the second half of Exodus, Leviticus, sections of Numbers, sections of Deuteronomy, uh, and there's so much that we just don't understand about the Old Covenant. As you read through those sections of Scripture, there's just a lot that we just don't really get. It doesn't make sense to us. So what we're doing is we're camped out at Sinai, so to speak, in our minds, and we are studying the Old Covenant so that we can understand it better before we leave Sinai to continue with the historical narrative about the Israelites going in to conquer the Promised Land. And, of course, then we get into the period of the judges and the kings and so on and so forth. And we continue with our Old Testament history. But we're still studying this Old Covenant. And where we are right now is in the beginning of Leviticus, studying the various types of offerings that uh, were a standard part of the Israelites' ceremonies and uh, sacrificial system. And we're in Leviticus chapter 2 tonight, looking at the grain offering. And it seems that this grain offering in chapter 2 was always offered together with um, the burnt offering mentioned in Leviticus chapter 1. Or should I say this, whenever the burnt offering was offered, also the grain offering was. The grain offering, however, could be offered on its own additionally. But whenever the burnt offering was offered from Leviticus 1, the grain offering always accompanied it, um, as per Numbers 28. I won't turn you there or read it. You can just check it out in your own time. But that's what Numbers 28 teaches us. This seems to be due in large part to the reality that the priests needed to be paid, so to speak. They needed to eat. And the grain offering was an offering that was consumed entirely by the priests, except for a very small portion called the memorial portion, which was really just a token amount. That was uh, burned on the altar, but the priests ate the rest of it. The grain offering then served as part of the payment of priests for offering up the burnt offerings. So as they did the work, they were able to eat the grain offerings as a, a means of their own sustenance. But the, as I said, the grain offering could also be offered on its own too, whenever anyone desired to bring it. So if you offered a burnt offering, you had to offer a grain offering at the same time. But if you just decided in your heart, I'd like to offer a grain offering, you could do that. And this raises the question, of course, as to why anyone would voluntarily bring an offering to the Lord which was not strictly required. Why would he put himself out? Tonight, we will consider three aspects of the grain offering, beginning with the first that I've already alluded to, namely the payment of the priests. The grain offering was consumed, as I said, by Aaron and his sons, except for the memorial portion, which was to be taken out. Listen to Leviticus chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. 
He shall take from it a handful of fine flour and oil with his frankincense, and the priest shall burn this as its memorial portion on the altar, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 13, Paul asks, Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple get their food from the temple? And those who share at the altar share, or pardon me, those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? Paul is making a practical argument in 1 Corinthians 9. Those whose vocation is associated with the worship of Yahweh still need to eat. It would be naive and it would be unjust to be so super spiritual as to not even think about the priest's food. Thankfully, God is neither naive nor unjust. God provides for his priests by virtue of the offerings, including the grain offerings. This ought to inform the way that we think about true spirituality. It's not true spirituality, it's not the absence of food. True spirituality is not the absence of physical realities and practical necessities. True spirituality is not transcending such things. True spirituality is embracing and addressing these bodily needs and physical material necessities and practical affairs in an appropriate way. The kind of worship that honors the Lord is the kind of worship that rightly acknowledges the way things are and has a real world sensibility to it. Imagine if I died and you had to find a new pastor. Would you be impressed with someone who didn't believe in collecting a salary and just told you that he was just going to move here to Barbados and just trust the Lord to provide? Or he was just going to quit his job and just trust the Lord to provide if, if he's already a Barbadian? Would you be impressed with that kind of spirituality? You shouldn't be. Instead, you should think of that person as being immature, naive, and impractical. How will he care for God's house if he manages his own household in such an irresponsible way? As the Lord teaches us through Paul in 1 Timothy 3, a guy has to demonstrate that he can take care of his own affairs in a responsible way before he is even qualified to have responsibility in the church. Now, of course, someone's going to say, well, what if the church can't afford it and he's really servant-hearted? Okay, look, if the church couldn't afford it and he wanted to find a way to make it work anyway, that's a different story. You know, if he said, well, I'm willing to work another job outside the church and do, what I, do the best I can in the church in the meantime, obviously, that's a different story. Someone's always going to find something to quibble about with examples like this. I understand um, that... Uh, Someone might be servant-hearted and might be willing to serve uh, without a salary. But that's besides the point I'm trying to make. 
the point that I'm trying to make is that we shouldn't be impressed with the spirituality of someone who is out of touch with reality. That's the point that I'm trying to make. We shouldn't be impressed with the spirituality of someone who is more spiritual than God himself, who makes provision for the practical necessities of those employed in his service. If God is not so spiritual as to require those employed in his service to serve without a salary, then we shouldn't be impressed with those who act like they're more spiritual than God and are going to set the bar just a little bit higher than our divine master has done. We see something then in the grain offering of God's holistic care for his priests. Not just their souls, but also their bodies. And that tells us something about the way God thinks about spirituality and the way that God thinks about a person and the way that God thinks about worship the way God thinks about piety. God is not unconcerned whether you eat or not. God is not unconcerned whether or not you have the practical necessities of life. God is never sitting in heaven saying, why do you concern yourself with that? Why are you complaining about being hungry? You should be more spiritual than that. Why are you complaining that you can't pay your bills? Who cares about your bills? Transcend that. Live on another plane where practical necessities and food and water don't matter. God is never saying that. We see in this provision here of God for his priests that even those who are at the very epicenter of Old Testament worship had provision from God not only for their souls but for their bodies. And that tells us something about God and his care holistically for his people. And it tells us something about the nature of true spirituality and true worship. That's the first aspect that we see about the grain offering. People give the offering to God, but then God turns around and gives it back to the priests. He says, here, eat of what has been put on my table, and let me take care of you. Not just your souls, but your bodies also. What a kind and benevolent master we serve. The next thing we see is that salt is offered with the grain offering. Verse 13 emphasizes this. It states it three ways. You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. Is anyone confused about whether you should include salt after reading verse 13? I don't think so. The threefold repetition really emphasizes you have to include salt with the grain offering. And it is called the salt of the covenant. In Numbers 18 and verse 19, we see similar language used. God says to Aaron that all the holy contributions that the people of Israel present to the Lord I give to you and to your sons and daughters with you as a perpetual due. It is the covenant of salt forever before the Lord for you and for your offspring with you. So what is this salt of the covenant or this covenant of salt as it's called in Numbers 18? To complicate matters, in 2 Chronicles 13 and verse 5, we read this, 
The Lord God of Israel gave the kingship over Israel forever to David and his sons by a covenant of salt. So, both the Levitical covenant, the covenant that God made with the Levites and with Aaron and his sons particularly to serve him as priests, and the Davidic covenant, and David was from the tribe of Judah, right? So totally different tribe. A covenant concerning not priesthood, but kingship. These two very different covenants, the Levitical priesthood, um, the covenant pertaining to the Levitical priesthood, and the covenant pertaining to the um, Juda, Judaite <laughs> kingship. Kingship, kings from the tribe of Judah. Both of these are called covenants of salt. So that complicates things a little bit more as we try to think, well, what does this mean then? One commentator believes that the significance of the salt with the food offering is symbolic, showing that between God and his people, and his people being represented by the priests, of course, even as our brother Jonathan prayed earlier in the service, reminding us that Aaron bore the names of the 12 tribes of Israel on his chest and on his shoulder pieces, and so that when he went into the most holy place to make atonement, it was as if all of the people went in with him. Right? He represented them. One commentator believes that the significance of the salt with the food offerings is symbolic, showing that between God and his people, who are represented by the priests, even the smallest thing is shared in mutuality. God's covenant is a covenant of sharing blessings of fellowship even down to the tiniest grain of salt. Okay, I admit that does make a certain amount of sense when we think about the theology of the Old Covenant and the fellowship between God and His people obtained by it. If we could make like a phrase that might in, encapsulate um, Old Covenant promises and... and um, the spirituality, the way the Israelites would perceive the, the uh, central aspect of Old Covenant spirituality, it might be this. I will be their God and they will be my people. And I will dwell with them. Right? So this was, it kind of makes sense then. So God promises to take the people as His and for Him to be theirs. And He will dwell with them and they'll be in the camp. And remember the tabernacle furniture, that there's the table in the holy place and there's the lamp shining on it so that the priests and all the people represented by the priests eat with God in his house from his table in a place where God himself is the light. And God shares with us everything that is his, even down to the tiniest grain of salt. I, I can see where the commentator is coming from when he interprets this covenant of salt and the salt of the covenant this way. However, that doesn't account for the same terminology used to describe the Davidic covenant. That is the covenant with the kings from the tribes, the tribe of Judah. So I think we have to discard that, as appealing as it, as it might be to, to use that lens. I don't think it fits in every place that the uh, terminology covenant of salt is used. 
A better hypothesis is offered by another commentator. He says salt symbolizes preservation, and preservation symbolizes permanence. God calls these covenants covenants of salt because the covenants are preserved and enduring. And this fits with the type of language that we see in Numbers 18. That's the verse I read from you for you a moment ago where God gives these offerings to Aaron and his sons as a perpetual due and as a covenant of salt forever. And in 2 Chronicles 13 and verse 5, similar language is used. The Lord God gave Israel, the Lord God of Israel gave the kingship over Israel forever to David and his sons by a covenant of salt. So the phrase covenant of salt is probably idiomatic, indicating that it is an enduring and preserved covenant that will remain forever. Perhaps this would have been more intuitive to early readers or hearers of these terms. It's, it's definitely foreign to us. We're not used to calling something a covenant of salt. And we're actually not told explicitly in the Bible what exactly is meant by the salt of the covenant, or the covenant of salt. So we're left to uh, come to the best conclusion that we can by thinking it through within the context of the available evidence. And I think what I just presented to you is probably the best way to understand it. Again, salt symbolizes preservation, and preservation symbolizes permanence. And so since God gave the Levitical covenant, not just to Aaron, but to Aaron and his sons, and not just to Aaron and his sons, but also to their sons after that, and on and on through the generations. And not just to, to David, but to David and his sons, all the way down to the son of David, who will rule and reign forever in the new heavens and the new earth. Since those covenants had a lasting generation after generation, permanency attached to them, God uses the symbol of permanence, preservation, uh, to describe those covenants. So he calls them covenants of salt. So back to the grain offering. Salt was offered as a symbol of the permanence of the arrangement. God had made provision for his people to be forever in relationship to the opportunity for fellowship with God through the appointed means is not a flash in the pan, fleeting opportunity. But Israel may walk with God throughout her generations. Now we know, of course, later that the Israelites rebelled against God and that God uh, eventually um, sent Christ into this world. He came unto his own, but his own received him not. And that God... Uh, as we read later on in Romans, turn his attention towards the Gentiles, and that, um, you know, so on and so forth. We understand what happened. That the old covenant was rendered obsolete, and that it was replaced and superseded by a new covenant. But hypothetically speaking, Israel could have walked with God generation after if they had kept his commandments. 
So we're back to, again, the nature of the old covenant, whereby uh, there was this if-then dynamic. If you do this, then such and such. And so it was, it was permanent and forever in that sense, that generation after generation, Israel could walk with God. Again, we see God's benevolence on display. Remember his benevolence with respect to his care for those employed in his service, making sure that they had enough to eat. We also see his care that not only would they have enough to eat, but their sons and their grandchildren would have enough to eat. And that not only would the generation that came out of Egypt be able to worship God and, and walk with God and have Yahweh dwell in their midst, but their children and their children's children would be able to have Yahweh dwell in their midst. Look at just how benevolent and kind God is to the nation of Israel. In establishing with them a covenant of salt. So we've seen that the grain offering was always offered also whenever the burnt offering was also was offered. And that the grain offering constituted a form of payment for the priests. This shows God's care for not only the souls but also the bodies of those employed in his service. And we've seen that the grain offering contains salt, which most likely symbolized the permanence of the arrangement in which God would dwell with his people by virtue of the system of sacrifices and ceremonies that he had instituted. So that an Israelite could be sure that not only would God be his God, but that God could also be the God of his children and his grandchildren after him, if their generations would also walk in his ways. Again, this shows the condescension and benevolence of God to dwell with a sinful people, generation after generation. At this juncture, I would remind you that the grain offering could also be offered on its own. It didn't always have to be offered with the burnt offering, but it could be offered on its own whenever anyone desired to bring it. And we'll circle back around to that question that I raised at the beginning of the sermon tonight. Why would anyone voluntarily bring an offering to the Lord which was not strictly required? Why would he put himself out? The last aspect of the grain offering that we will look at tonight is the right sort of motivation for bringing a grain offering freely. In Deuteronomy chapter 26, we read this about the first fruits and the tithe. When you come into the land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance and have taken possession of it and live in it, you shall take some of the first of all the fruit of the ground which you harvest from your land that the Lord your God has given you, and you shall put it in a basket, and you shall go to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell in. And you shall go to the priest who is in office at that time and say to him, I declare today to the Lord your God that I have come into the land that the Lord swore to our fathers to give us. Then the priest shall take the basket from your hand and set it down before the altar of the Lord your God. And you shall make response before the Lord your God. A wandering Aramean was my father, and he went down into Egypt and sojourned there, few in number. 
And there he became a nation, great, mighty, and populous. And the Egyptians treated us harshly and humiliated us and laid on us hard labor. Then we cried to the Lord, the God of our fathers. And the Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction, our toil, and our oppression. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great deeds of terror, with signs and wonders. And he brought us into this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And behold, now I bring the first of the fruit of the ground, which you, O Lord, have given me. And you shall set it down before the Lord your God and worship before the Lord your God. And you shall rejoice in all the good that the Lord your God has given to you and to your house, you and the Levite and the sojourner who is among you. And on and on the chapter goes. So there's this script for how you are to bring the first fruits and the tithe. There's this liturgy come and, and you bring it to the priest and the priest sets it before the Lord and then you rehearse that whole thing. A wandering Aramean was my father. And you rehearse the bondage in Egypt and you rehearse how the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and you rehearse how good the land is that God had given you. And then you say, and now behold, I bring the first fruit of the ground which you, O Lord, have given me. I understand that this is about the tithe and not the grain offering. And I understand that in Deuteronomy 26 that this tithe is mandated and not optional. But the principle behind what is written, articulated by the worshiper as he rehearses this script, is the same principle that might prompt someone to freely bring a grain offering or any other type of free will offering that wasn't strictly mandated. There are two motivations, and there always have been two motivations, to give God anything. The first is either to earn or purchase something from God or to escape something bad from God. That's the first. The second is out of gratitude. So there are two ways of thinking about it. One is, if I give this thing to God, whatever it is, money, time, energy, worship, whatever. It's going to earn me some points before God, so to speak. Or it's going to make me deserve something before God. Or perhaps God is mad at me, and if I do this thing, then I can escape a bad outcome. Right? And so the first motivation is very much like, I'm going to do this so that God will do something for me. The second motivation, gratitude, is like, I already have everything that I need from God. I'm not trying to get Him to do something good for me. I'm not trying to get Him to refrain from doing something bad to me. I'm just so grateful for how God has dealt with me that I'm going to give Him something. Again, whether it's like money, time, energy, a song, whatever. Gratitude. The Heidelberg Catechism is divided into three sections. Misery, deliverance, and gratitude. Part one, part two, part three. Many have 
notice that a more catchy way to divide up these three sections is guilt, grace, gratitude. Part one, guilt. Part two, grace. Part three, gratitude. Or in the original language, part one, misery. Part two, deliverance. Part three, gratitude. Now let me ask you this question. In which section do the Ten Commandments appear? You may not know. So think about it. Misery, deliverance, or gratitude? Where, where should the Ten Commandments come? In that religion? Well, the irreligious say misery. They hate God's law. They think it's just going to make them miserable. So let's put the Ten Commandments in that first part. Misery. We don't want God's Ten Commandments. It's just a miserable part of religious life. We don't want that. Okay? Now, the religious, but not truly Christian, say that it should come in the deliverance section. Right? We were lost in our sin, and then we want deliverance, and so how will we get deliverance? Enter the Ten Commandments. Right? We'll do the Ten Commandments so that we'll get deliverance. You see? That would be where those who are trying to earn or, or deserve something before God by giving something to God. That's where they would put the Ten Commandments. Or those who are trying to escape something bad from God. That's where they would put the Ten Commandments. If I do the Ten Commandments well enough, or at least sincerely enough, then maybe God will spare me having to go to hell. So let's put like sin in misery, and then let's put God's law, the Ten Commandments, in deliverance. Right? But those who understand Christ's word as the author of the authors of the Heidelberg Catechism did, put the Ten Commandments in the last category. Gratitude. You see, the gospel is not that you can try harder and do better to get yourself out of Egypt. The gospel isn't that you can save yourself with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. The gospel isn't that you can keep God's law and merit a land flowing with milk and honey. The gospel is that when you were enslaved, God sent someone to get you out of it. And God brought you out of it with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. And God took you as his people before he even gave you the law. The preface to the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall have no other gods before so on and so forth. The gospel is not that you can get yourself out of sin, that you can deliver yourself from misery by your worship, by your obedience, and so on and so forth. The gospel is that 
You are bound in your sin, enslaved, as it were. God sent someone to get you out of it. His name is Jesus. And he came and he lived a perfect and righteous life on your behalf. And he died a penalty-bearing death for you. These are the kinds of things that are listed in the Heidelberg Catechism in part two. Deliverance. Stuff about Jesus and who he is and what he's done and so on and so forth. And so the grain offering or our obedience to the Ten Commandments or showing up to church on Sunday or whatever else it is that you might give to God should come from a heart of gratitude. You shouldn't have to feel like, or you shouldn't feel like the only reason that I would go to church, or the only reason that I would obey the Ten Commandments, or the only reason that I would offer up to God a great offering, that I don't have to, is if it will get me something with God, or if it will help me escape from something bad that God wants to do to me. That's not the way that you should think about giving to God. The way that you should think about giving to God is what a benevolent God He is. We've seen already in the provision for the priests, in making this a covenant of salt, in giving the Israelites the opportunity to have Him dwell among them and to live with them, bringing them into a land flowing with milk and honey. What a great God He is. Why wouldn't you want to give Him grain up? If you lived in that day and age, what a, what a good and right thing it would do. It would be to just do that. Just be like that. Look at how great Yahweh is. Our God is an awesome God. I'm bringing a grain offering tomorrow. I'm going to go right down to the temple and offer up a grain offering. Well, why would you do that, man? Why would you waste your grain? What are you, what are you talking about? Look at how good God is. Look at how great God is. Contemporary equivalent might be something like just our, our obedience. Or just making it a priority to be in church. Let's say, let's say that it's not even the Lord's Day. So there's no command that you have to be there. What if we just had a special service on a Friday night? You don't have to come. It's not a sin to not come. But why wouldn't you want to go worship God? Why wouldn't you want to be among God's people? Why wouldn't you want to gather with the saints? Why wouldn't you want to sing God's name? He's a great God. Our God is an awesome God. Man, you're, you're busy. Yeah, not too busy for God. You know? But it's going to cost you gas money or lost wages if you take the night off work. I don't care. Look at all that God's done for me. You see, our obedience, our offerings, they don't always ha have to be, in fact, they ought not to be motivated by trying to earn something from God. The ideal thing is actually that they just come from a heart that's thankful and grateful for what God's done. And so the law of Deuteronomy 26, I know, applies to the tithe and not the grain offering. And though it's mandated in the grain offering, not. I think that just that rehearsal that we read about in Deuteronomy 26 
my father was a wandering Arabian. We were slaves in Egypt. God got us out, brought us into this land full of milk and honey. Therefore, I bring this. I just think that that's a really great lens for thinking about why someone would freely offer something like the grain offering or any other free will offering. We'll come to more of those as we make our way through. Remember the guilt, grace, gratitude structure of the Heidelberg Catechism. That's a really great structure for thinking about our life, our Christian life. Remember the misery, deliverance, gratitude, the original language of those. Think to yourself, where do I put the things that I offer to God? Hopefully not in misery, or most likely you're an unbeliever. But it shouldn't be in deliverance either. Those are not the things that deliver you. Deliverance is about the things that pertain to Jesus and his work for us. Categorize mentally what you give to God in the third section. Gratitude. God was so good to the Israelites under the old covenant. How much more to us under the new. We should offer up whatever would be pleasing to God willingly. Though we've already escaped punishment and have already been given eternal life as a gift. 